Section 12 of the Roman Triumvirates by Charles Merivale. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 6. Rupture Between Caesar and the Senate. Part 1. At the end of six months, Pompeius, following the prescriptive rule of the dictatorial office, divested himself of his sole consulship and caused his father-in-law, Metellus Scipio, to be associated with him. He had succeeded in imposing order upon the populace in the city. He had given the tribunals a semblance at least of purity and justice, and the Senate might seem to recover under his shelter some portion of its pristine dignity. To maintain this outward show, he obtained the consulship for the next year for two of its leading members, Servius Sulpicius, a moderate man and of high character, and Marcus Marcellus, a violent aristocrat, devoted to his patron's personal interests, while he procured the defeat of Cato, whom he regarded as a troublesome interloper. Caesar had just effected the destruction of Vercingetorix, and the people had constrained the Senate to decree a supplication or public thanksgiving in his honor. Marcellus retorted by gravely demanding that the proconsul of Gaul should be recalled. The fiercest partisans of the oligarchy, confident in the preeminent position now occupied by Pompeius, supported him vehemently, but their violence disturbed their own champion, who feared a renewal of the recent tumults, and this desperate measure was overruled. The enemies of Caesar found other ways of venting their displeasure the proconsul had accepted the patronage of the transpadane gauls and had founded a colony at noum comum the modern como the transpadanes had already acquired from pompeius strabo the rights of latium which at this time conferred almost the consideration as well as many of the privileges of the roman franchise marcellus in order to irritate caesar had caused a citizen of this Latin colony to be seized on some pretense and beaten with rods. The man was not a Roman, indeed, nor had he served, it would seem, a magistracy in his own town, by which he would have acquired the immunities of a Roman. Marcellus may not have violated the actual letter of the law, which exempted a Roman citizen from the degradation of the scourge. Nevertheless, the Romans themselves acknowledged that it was an indignity to scourge even a latin and both caesar and his friends in the city regarded the act as a deliberate affront to the popular chieftain caesar with studied moderation refrained from resenting this high-handed proceeding he knew that the insolence of the nobles was confirming him in the favour of the populace nor indeed did pompeius give it his august countenance Possibly he too was content to let the citizens mark the difference between a sage and experienced champion such as himself and the vulgar violence of the headstrong faction to which he had given their turn of office. He absented himself from Rome during the remainder of the year and visited his villas, pretending to be employed in provisioning the city. While his rival was completing in his eighth campaign, the long war which formed his army and created his resources, he withdrew with his intimates from the more eminent men of his party, dallied with the pursuits of literature and philosophy, 
and sought perhaps to recruit his failing health. Meanwhile, the nobles, as if bent on their own ruin, strove to remove the man from whose moderation they might still have learned a salutary lesson. They had persuaded Cicero to quit, not without reluctance, the centre of affairs, and assume the government of Cilicia from the month of August in this year. Discarded as he had long been from the councils of the Optimates, and treated with ill-disguised contempt by the brawlers who swayed them, he still clung to the hope that all classes would at last combine to invoke him to save the state a second time. But the spirit of the senatorial faction was such that he would have been allowed to do them no service had he remained within their call, while his short career as proconsul in Cilicia had obtained for him well-merited honour. In the conduct of his civil administration in that province, he left a brilliant example of honour and integrity, and even in the command of a military force against the marauders in the mountains, he demeaned himself, though untrained in arms, as became a Roman imperator. His opportunities, however, were slight, and his successes were necessarily trifling. The innate vanity of his character is again curiously evinced by the dream in which he indulged that he had merited the glories of a legitimate triumph, which on his return he solicited with unworthy importunity. The consul, Marcus Marcellus, had urged Caesar's peremptory recall. Pompeius, who had himself obtained leave for him to sue for the consulship without quitting his government, gave way so far as to allow the Senate to decree at the end of September in this year that a successor to his province should be definitely appointed six months from that time, that is, in the March following. No policy could be more feeble than this. It irritated Caesar. At the same time, it gave him an interval to provide for his own defense. Two of the tribunes sprang forward to put their veto upon the decree. The consul Sulpicius himself exclaimed against it. It seems that even at this moment of embittered feeling, many of the more respectable members of the Senate demurred to an act so violent and indecent. Pompeius, who had just quitted the city under pretense of hastening to repair to his province, watched every turn in the game, and now affected to disapprove of so extreme a measure. He allowed Gaius Marcellus, the cousin of Marcus, to be elected consul for the ensuing year, thus securing one strong partisan to the Senate. But he neutralized this act of vigor to some extent by getting Paulus Aemilius appointed his colleague, who was well known to have sold himself to Caesar for a large sum of money with which to erect his splendid basilica in the Forum. Among the new tribunes was another friend of Caesar who was also reputed to have been bought with Gallic gold. Gaius Scribonius Curio was the son of a senator of high rank and authority, a firm but temperate supporter of his party. The son had early disgraced himself by his licentiousness. He had found himself companions among the most dissolute young men of his class. He was needy and unprincipled. Yet he was a youth not only of excellent parts but also of amiable character. He was a favorite with Cicero, who, despairing of his own contemporaries, now often looked with pleasing enthusiasm to the rising generation for objects of hope and faith. But he was not proof against Caesar's seductions, 
and now, having attained an important office, he was prepared to defend his cause with desperate resolution. Caesar's enemies were no doubt well aware of the sums he had lavished in the purchase of adherents. Far more lavish was the expenditure which he incurred in the organization of his province and his armies. Disappointed in their hope that he might be crushed by the Gauls, they now flattered themselves that his resources were exhausted, that they could outbid him in the favor of the provincials and even of his own soldiers. When Atticus the Epicurean, who looked more to money than to politics, called on him for the liquidation of a private debt of fifty talents, they imagined that he would be seriously embarrassed. He repaid this trifling blow by ordering the construction of a sumptuous villa at Arisia. Above all, they placed their reliance on the force of seven legions which were under the command of Pompeius, and which, though quartered in Spain, might be promptly transported across the sea, even if the route of Gaul should be closed against them. At this moment, the commander in Syria was calling for reinforcements against the Parthians. The Senate decreed that two additional legions should be sent to him. The resources of the Republic lay in the rival camps of Pompeius and Caesar. The Senate demanded a legion from each. Pompeius, as has been before mentioned, had previously lent a legion to Caesar. This he now required to be returned to him for his own contingent, while the Senate insisted on his furnishing another for his own. Two divisions were thus removed from Gaul, and when they arrived in Italy, the Senate unscrupulously retained them near the frontier to strengthen their own position. But Caesar had plied them with generous gifts, and in the end they imparted weakness rather than strength to his enemies. Meanwhile these untoward consequences were little foreseen by Pompeius or the faction which clamored around him. When they discussed among themselves their chances of success, and some one inquired of their champion what he would do should their enemy persist in suing for the consulship and refuse at the same time to relinquish his command what he replied if my own son should raise his stick against me the first two months of the year fifty b c were occupied with the reception of foreign embassies and the regulation of external affairs on the first of march the question arose which had been suspended since the previous september and on which the existence of the commonwealth itself depended caesar's powers were destined to expire on the last day of december b c forty nine but the nobles were too impatient to wait still nearly two years for this much-looked-for consummation delay which at a previous time might have involved him in further risks could now, since the final pacification of his province, serve only to strengthen his position. The recent motion for his recall had been thus far evaded. Gaius Marcellus now came forward to agitate it afresh. But Paulus temporized, Curio threatened, Pompeius, it would seem, had been taken with a cold fit of timidity, or at least of procrastination. Common decency required, perhaps, that an interval of some months should be accorded, and Marcellus was constrained to extend the respite till the November next ensuing. With this proviso, a majority of the Senate would have voted for Caesar's recall, notwithstanding the silence of the other consul. But Curio now rose in his place, 
and in a speech conciliatory indeed, and flattering towards Marcellus himself, insinuated that if such a course was adopted towards Caesar, the same measure must in fairness be applied to Pompeius also. If this second resolution were rejected, he vowed to put his veto on the first. Marcellus now lost all command of his temper. He denounced Caesar as a brigand, and urged the Senate to declare him a public enemy unless he should lay down his arms. But Curio had taken counsel with his friends, and was well assured that his specious proposal would be strongly supported. He insisted that the question should be put to the vote, and when the senators were counted off on the opposite sides of the hall, the motion for the simultaneous disarming of both the rivals was carried by an overwhelming majority. Curio was content with this result, which he knew he could turn to the interest of his patron. The people received him in the forum with redoubled acclamations, and strewed his path with flowers, in acknowledgment of the substantial victories he had gained. It was certain that Pompeius would not surrender his legions, and Caesar would become justly entitled to retain his own command. Marcellus fumed with anger and mortification, and was prepared to plunge still deeper into the course of violence and illegality. He protested that he would not listen to the harangues of demagogues while ten armed legions were appearing across the Alps. He too would summon an armed champion to defend the commonwealth. But Pompeius, meanwhile, remained sluggish and inactive, and held aloof from these high-handed proceedings. He absented himself from the city, travelled from villa to villa, went to meet Cicero at Tarentum on his return from Cilicia, and the two veteran statesmen entertained one another with discourses on the position of affairs, which established some mutual confidence between them. Pompeius was suffering in bodily health, which no doubt prostrated his energies at this critical moment. His friends and allies were equally wondering at the eclipse which he had allowed to creep over him. But it was soon widely brooded that the great man had fallen sick of a fever at Neapolis, and was lying at the point of death. The report of his danger roused the sympathy of the Italians, which spread from city to city. The temples were crowded with devotees, sacrifices were offered, and vows recorded for his recovery. It was a singular instance of the vehemence of popular enthusiasm. When his health was unexpectedly restored, the people rushed tumultuously to congratulate their ancient favorite, and showered their blessings upon him as he was slowly transported in his litter to Rome. Memorable indeed was the example thus presented of the short-sightedness of mortals and the vanity of human wishes. The gods, exclaimed the Roman moralists, offered in their divine prescience to remove the great Pompeius at the summit of his fortunes beyond the sphere of human contingencies. But the cities and the nations interposed with prayer and preserved their beloved hero for defeat and decapitation. Pompeius himself was no less blind than his admirers. Estimating the depth of his influence by the loudness of these flattering acclamations, he no longer mistrusted the extent of his resources, nor doubted the terror of his name. There was no one at his ear to whisper to him how hollow these demonstrations were. 
to foretell that his garrisons would lay down their arms and italy surrender without a blow while the voices now most eager in their devotion to him would welcome the conqueror of gaul with no less fervent enthusiasm but what murmured cicero when the delusion was over and his chief was shifting the basis of his power to a foreign shore what are the prospects of a party whose champion falls dangerously sick at least once a year the gallic legions indeed were still retained in their cantonments beyond the mountains but the proconsul himself was drawing nearer to rome and the progress he now made through the cities of the cisalpine but strictly within the limits of his province was a continued triumph and defiance under pretence of courting the suffrages of the citizens in that district for his quaestor antonius who was suing for the augurate he passed the summer on the confines of his government the people came to greet him on every side or celebrated his arrival in their towns with feasts and sacrifices from the cisalpine he hastened back in the autumn to the country of the treveri where he had summoned his forces to a general review and there he doubtless communicated to his officers his resolve to extort from the senate full satisfaction of all their demands the consulship for himself the honour of the triumph and the confirmation of the acts of his long proconsulship with lands and money for his soldiers they cabal he said to wrest from me my rights but laying his hand on his sword this shall maintain them at this moment cicero had just returned from cilicia and sued for a triumph trifling as his successes had been the greatest of all military honours had sometimes no doubt been granted for less it was not a time for mortifying even the vanity of a good citizen but cato opposed himself to the demand with his surly impracticability and the senate weakly or spitefully sanctioned the refusal pompeius to whom cicero had applied for his support had amused his petitioner with hollow compliments while caesar on his part expressed his warm approbation together with the offer of his services thus easily detaching him from the counsels of his ungenerous party and disposing him to remain a mute spectator of the rapid advance of the crisis before him the senate meanwhile made no actual preparation for the approaching contest if marcellus applied to pompeius and urged him to concentrate the legions which he had under his command in the west he was satisfied or at least silenced with the great captain's vainglorious reply i have only to stamp with my foot to raise up legions from the soil of italy pompeius depended on the veterans to whom he had himself given lands and to the sons perhaps of the veterans of sulla neither he nor his adherents knew how slight was the tie which bound these graceless clients to him the senators were reassured however by his boastful confidence and voting again at the bidding of their favourite consul decided by a great majority in the teeth of their recent vote that caesar should be at once recalled and his rival be allowed at the same time to retain his powers the injustice of this decision was palpable nor less so that caesar by yielding to it would have rushed on his own destruction it was impossible for him to come to the city and sue for the consulship as a candidate in the toga his life would not have been safe for a moment 
nor was it more safe for him even to descend into private life and surrender his claim to the office which was necessary for his personal security once more curio exclaimed against the action of the nobles and the populace perceiving the situation at a glance hailed his efforts with tumultuous applause the senate was alarmed and swayed back again with the natural levity of the southern temperament on a second division the consul was outvoted by a majority as great as that which had but just now supported him marcellus was baffled he dismissed the senate exclaiming in his irritation you have carried the day but you shall have caesar for your master End of section 12.